As Julie mentioned, we are resuming to David's series. Um, our series on David is more than a life of David, but it is life and the heart of David in, in a way that we get to see what's happening at David's life, but also what's happening at David's heart and what God is doing in behind the scene. And today is no exception, but since it's been eight weeks since our last message on David, let's have a quick recap before we begin. Um, the whole thing today begins with Absalom's coup d'etat. The insurrection happens today. But chapters prior to chapter 15 and 16 sets the background of this revolt. It starts with rape and murder. David had several wives, and the first son, Abnon, was feeling so attracted to his half-sister, Tamar. She was beautiful, and she, he thought that he had true love and basically convinced her to be in the same room. Eventually, he raped her. And more worse than even before, he felt disgusted and hateful toward her after ha having violated her. And even today's world... A woman who's violated that way lost, loses soul. soul. But in, in, back in the days, in that culture, it was everything. And Tema was crying, walking home, and the Absalom, his fool, her fool brother, was in rage. We all would be. But for, for two years, their father, King David, didn't do anything. Didn't say a word about it. Just mentioned that he was angry toward what happened. So uh, through our series, we learned that David was quite different from other biblical characters like Jacob. Remember, Jacob was so driven and strong-willed person. He was promised to, to receive God's blessing, but he had to manipulate situations to make it happen, deceive his father. And he was running away from his elder brother, consequently. But David didn't do that. Even at the hands, uh, even at the opportune time that he could kill King David, who was pursuing him to get rid of him, David waited patiently. God's time for God's time. But this is quite different. He was actually like Jacob. Jacob had instances like this with his sons, and became very passive about. When, when his 
his sons were going through a rebellious time, and these, these kind of incidents happen. But this time, just like Jacob, David is passive. And this is one of those things that we need to catch, although it's uh, on a peripheral issues. The lesson for, for here is when father of a family is passive, in one sense, when son or daughters are not doing well and, and going astray, father becomes passive. It becomes a problematic. In another sense, that passively distant, detached, or without any kind of communication, affection, and it becomes a problematic. And David's family problem actually leads to his national problem. Or maybe we could give him a little bit of an excuse. Maybe he was feeling guilty because if he sinned against God with adultery with Bathsheba, uh, maybe the sexual sin was a little bit too taboo for him to touch. So he kind of wanted to stay away from. Uh, whatever the reason, his son Absalom waited two years and hired his men to kill Amnon. Sin Sin feeds on sin. And he runs away for three years. He's estranged from his family, his father. And he finally brought back to Jerusalem after three years. But David permitted him to come back, but didn't give him the permission to see him. He was forbidden to come into the presence of the king. So his bitterness grew. And after two years of living in Jerusalem, and yet distant from his, his father, and finally King David half-heartedly agreed to see him and kissed him, but it was too, a little bit too late. He already had this idea of ambition. It was rationalized with good reasons, half-hearted good, half-good reasons. If I were king, no injustice, injustice like this will go on. I'll make it right. So this, with the revengeful ambition... He gets up early in the morning. Uh, by the way, he hires a men running away, running in front of him whenever he makes a parade in his, in his chariot. So this a pompous royal parade was happening all the time. But for four years, think about this power of bitterness, quiet, passive aggression happens. He shows up in, in the city gate, and people usually gather, want to be heard by the king or by the appointees of kings to rule their case. It's a financial case or it's a business case. 
a marital case. And Absalom asked them, where are you from? What are your stories? Oh, your story has a good legal and truthfulness in there. If I were the king, these things will be ruled well. But too bad. Can you believe that he has done that for four years? And that people began to drift it away from this popular king once. And David was detached and aloof from his family, his, his national issues. The people became more gathered around Absalom. By the way, his hair was so dark, especially as I'm getting older. I, I, I'm very envious of people who have a thick hair. And you know, whenever I get up in the morning, there's a few drops of my hair on my bed. And then my younger days, I would shower and just go like this. Nothing is needed, and it will have a full volume. <laughs> but this hair that you're looking at, uh, these are hair, you know, hair blow dryer for 10 minutes to pop it up a little bit. <laughs> and he was so good looking, everybody thought that he is a king type, royal type. And then the, the day of coup finally, coup finally came and he told secretly, when the trumpet sounds, get up and shout, Absalom is the king in Hebron. And that leads to our text today. Our text, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13, starts with like this. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. Just imagine this Frantic escape. And whoever is loyal to David will come with David. And in this exile, on the road of fleeing Jerusalem, he meets five people, five men. And some of them are loyal, some of them are disloyal, some of them are bad, some of them are good. But through that, we have such a, such a, not only fascinating story, but powerful lessons. 
The first one is Itai the Gittite. He's a foreigner that has no gain going with David. As a matter of fact, he was a Philistine. Remember, Israel was constantly in battle, and King David has gained the popularity as a young shepherd boy who killed a Goliath, nine-foot giant, warrior of Philistines. But when he was in Gath, he had a following. And many of them became even devout believer of the Lord Yahweh. And he's one of them. Verse 18, And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelotites, these are the bodyguards. They're paid to do this, but not the Gittites. And all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. And the king said to Itai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show, he, show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Itai answered the king, As the Lord lives, as, and as my Lord king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will my, your servant be. And David said to Itai, Go then, pass on. So Itai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. If you are foreigner, and especially Philistine, you don't have a political ties. There's a no reason for loyalty, especially in this chaotic crisis. It makes much more sense, practical sense, and politically savvy if you stayed and just be loyal to the new king. But Itai, in these dark stories, is a bright beam of hope, a very encouraging story. Because he, he swears that wherever you will go, the Lord will be with you, so I will be with you too. It sounds like you, Ruth, another foreigner, who promises loyalty to he, her, her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's easy to, to uh, be royal to our friends when they're popular. And when they are famous, too. Things are going well. We want to be known with them. But when they're going through downhill, when they're going through suffering, 
we somehow want to detach ourselves, don't we? As you know, I've been in youth ministry or college ministry for a long time. One of my students who used to be like Soren, just likes drooling on, I mean, drawing things during Bible study time. Like right now, sorry. <laughs> he became an adult and famous artist. Now he is the concept designer of all these superhero movies, like Avengers and all those things. And, and I find out he became a celebrity. He was in town nearby. We couldn't see him because there's so many, so long line. And they uh, Soren felt like he he needed to pay for his, get his signature, and I, my you know my former my friend recognized him. Oh, what are you talking about? Take the twenty away, and he gave, he signed him and gave him. He felt really encouraged, and I feel like that's right. <laughs> but what if? Another side of stories, one of our friends who's going through downhill, let's not even mention the popularity was it. There's a moral failure on him. Everybody walks out from, from that person. A couple of years later, two, three years later, when I finally had lunch with him, he mentioned that no one ever from his community really reached out to him that much. Oh, do, do we need a friend like Itai, the Gittite? Second person is Zadok, the priest. And the third person is Hushai, the archive. Verse 24, the Abithar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of, the God, Ark of God back to, into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord... He will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace. And with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abaithai. See, I will wait for the fours at the fours of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olive, weeping as he went, 
barefoot with his head covered. This is like a, uh, becomes like grieving funeral sin. The head covering is usually that's showing grief and sadness, lament. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went and it was told David Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him, meet him with his coat, coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in the time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Anat-Zedak and Abithar, the priest, with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zedak and Abithar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zedak's son, and Jonathan, Abithar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was returning, entering Jerusalem. These are the two people who were sent back. David didn't allow them to come with him. The first of all, Zadok and Abitha, the high priest, they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because as priests, they knew David was the chosen one, the anointed king by the Lord. So wherever anointed king goes, the Ark of the Covenant should go, which represents the dwelling place of God. And along with the Ark of the Covenant, they'll bring their high priest clothes, which is Ephah, and has two stones. So whenever they were at the crossroad, they prayed and two stones revealed the answers of God. So which means these are very useful. During the Saul's kingdom, Israel once took the Ark into the battle, using it as an amulet, a lucky charm, basically, to win over the battle. And what, what happened? Philistine basically took over that, killed everyone, and took away the Ark of the Covenant. And David, when he became king, he brought it back with a lot of heart, you know, during the hardship uh, of bringing back as well. 
So here the question is, I am running away from my own sons and his powerful army, most of Israelites are not with them. Maybe I should have Ark of the Covenant just to keep me safe. Or at least we could have the effort so our, my priest here can, can communicate what God desires and guides for us. So in other words, if you're a political leader, a typical political leader's mindset is, we need to get there, entrepreneur-like, right? By any means, or if that is helpful. But King David here shows true heart. He did not want to use God for his end. His trust was not in the object of the ark. But God, the Lord Yahweh, who covenanted with his love and grace with him, with the Israelites. It's easy for us to say, um, yeah, if we have a faith, we need to Trust God. But what if you're just stripped away from all the resources? Don't you feel like, God, you've got to do something right now? Unless you've got to do something, I might be angry. I might turn away from you. I might stop going to church. I might stop reading the Bible as if God is threatened by that. But here, the important thing is that God is doing something in David's heart through this bottom, rock bottom experience of crisis. And Hushai, uh, verse 37 says, Hushai, David's friend, and having studied on this text a little deeper, I find out that David's friend is a title. There's a friend in monarch, uh, true, loyal counselor. Trusted, trusted counselor. But they called it friend. I think that he, he was also relationally David's friend as well. But he came as a trusted counselor and David sends him back. Okay, it's one thing to go with David to show loyalty, but it's another thing to go back as a double agent, as a spy, and you need to live a double life, and you need to build trust with Absalom and his servants. And by the way, Ahithophel, which is really most revered of the visor, will be there. He will be keen in detecting any kind of suspicion. He needs to overcome that. But he's loyalty here. Lots of sacrifice. The question for us is, 
Are we willing to be loyal? Most of the times, if it doesn't hurt us. Well, what if it costs us so much to be loyal? It requires our money and time and spent. It might affect my kids. It might affect my family. Should I and could I stay loyal? So those two men teaches a lot about a true friendship and David's heart in terms of his trust in God. Here's another one. Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. Uh, I would call him a politically savvy go-getter. Chapter 16, verse 1 begins with this. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziva, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And David said to Ziva, Why have you brought these? Ziva answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat. And the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. Sounds good so far. Verse 3, and the king said, and where is your master's son? Which means, uh, Mephibosheth was a grandson of King Saul, uh, Jonathan's son. And because of his covenant, David's covenant with Jonathan, he not only kept him alive, and he treated almost like as his son, you shall eat at king's table every day. Mephibosheth, if you remember, because the chaos of running away from uh, the turning over the government thing. The nurse dropped the baby and it became lame. He couldn't walk. So there's a beauty of God's mercy. And we heard about God's hesed. The Hebrew word for covenant love, loyal love. Kindness was shown to Mephibosheth. So he's inquiring, what is going on? Where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziva said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord and king. Isn't it interesting the narrator really make it explicitly clear whether he's lying or not. But chapter 19, we get to find out full story. When, when David returns to Jerusalem, he, 
He gets to see Mephibosheth. And this was a fat lie. Lest we are quick to judge him, let's make sure that we understand this type of person. Ziva is one of those people who are savvy, politically savvy. He's been around. Look at his insight. Even though everybody's running away from King David because of danger, he's actually running toward him. He thought that this is golden opportunity for his success. He's a go-getter. So not necessarily he's an evil, wicked person, but because he wants to achieve his goal, and he doesn't care, he doesn't give a rip about his master. I twisted stories a little bit. I think David was suspicious. But David doesn't go there. Uh, we get to hear the full story in chapter 19. Is it to be continued? That, isn't that exciting? This is better than K-drama. <clears throat> but when you think about Ziva and what he did with his generosity, he's a steward. In other words, a head servant of everything Mephibosheth uh, owned, including the, the winery and farm, and he brought all these very generous gifts. And probably David's uh, people who were thirsty and who were tired, who were drained, they were so glad that Ziva came to refresh them. Just sounds good. Hundred of summer fruits. I love fruits. So when you think about those of you who love wine, oh, this fresh wine, wine skin, and bread. And then back in that time and in that culture, because of that surrounding raisin. Was it just a delicacy? Probably the one of the best snacks that they had. Finally, the fifth person is Shimei. I call it uh, the disgruntled Benjaminite. He's a cursing soul loyalist, a relative of King Saul. Verse 5 of chapter 16. When King David came to Baruim, there came out a man of the family of house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and, and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out! Get out! You man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, 
whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. He seemed to refer to Abner, the, the general. And he seemed to refer to Ishibosheth, King Saul's son. Both of them were killed by others, not King David. But he's just very upset. David was, kingdom was united and everybody's one page. Actually, the section of people, not only Shimei, but group of people are still soul, soul loyalists. Verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Jeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Abishai was his cousin. Remember, David was the youngest. Zeruiah, the oldest sister. So it's one of those um, Hoi and Jinni kind of thing. Although his nephew, he was probably a similar age, and he was a warrior, and he was a loyal bodyguard, and he was furious about what was going on. And he, he suggests solution. Let me go take off his head. Where was I? Let's read verse 9 again. Sorry. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should that dog, this dead dog, uh, curse my lord the king, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. And that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Shimei is just one of those characters. To make this story just a little bit relevant, I thought about what would be my, my reaction. So I, I came to realize this one moment when 
my sons were younger. My third son uh, was in Little League, and he was quite passionate. Whenever he gets struck, struck out or whenever he misses his thing, he would just get teary, literally. He's a passionate guy. But his team was not doing so well that this other town came in. They were just killing them. And the score was, I don't even remember. Those doesn't sound like a baseball score. It's like 15 to 1 or something like that. And the only fifth inning or sixth inning, to worsen it all, their coach and the parents who came to watch them just trash-talked and laughed and, and made fun of our kids. The kids who are Little League, and sometimes they don't, they're not coordinated. And I could see my son getting really red. He's a passionate kid. Didn't know what to do. And all the kids were there. And to tell the truth, if I did, they didn't know I was a pastor, <laughs> I could pull out my taekwondo a little bit. <laughs> I was so, somebody shut him up. That kind of thing. Uh, I was mad at umpire. Umpire didn't intervene. And I was so proud of our coach who finally said, that's it. The game's over. We don't play the team who doesn't have manner. So I was even inside of shouting, yes, that's right, that's right. Coming into this scene, and Abishai, this loyal warrior, let me just go take off his head. I will not, I will not externally go, yes, go do it, go do it. I, I, if you really want to, you could. <laughs> What's David's response here? David's man after God's own heart is back now. His suffering actually brought him back to his old self. A broken, contrite heart, the secret of David's heart, why David was so pleasurable in God's eyes is not because David was so morally right and he did everything right, because he's just broken, tender, contrite heart to God. And he was beginning to hear God's word, the voice of God through this enemy, through this worthless, cursing, dead dog. He thought that Shimia is preaching a sermon. Like a prophet, personalized to David. In all these stories, we could get lost in so many little details 
as much as it was entertaining and engaging and intense story, we need to see the lessons, what God is doing behind the scene. So I have three things that I meditated and try to synthesize and word it right. But before I do that, let me go to Psalm 3 and read some of the verses there. Psalm 3, the superscription says, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So this is the context. Okay, let's look at his heart, what's going through his mind. Verse 1, O Lord, how many are my, my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out loud, out loud to, to the Lord. And he answered me from his holy hill. And catch this. I lay down and slept. I walk again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. One of the things that I uh, deal with as a pastor, some, there are so many stresses in ministry. And I go to pastors' meeting, so about six, six, seven pastors gather together. There's horrendous stories. The people who have a skin problem because of stress, and doctor basically said, you need to stop, taking a, take a break. People who are accused from these other, other staff members and church members. So whenever I thought I have some problem, I go over there, I feel better. <laughs> but I do have stresses. One of the stress symptoms is I get up in the middle of the night. I cannot go back to sleep. And sometimes it's 2.30. It's excruciatingly painful to stay up and tumble up and down, I mean, you know, try to do exercises to make myself go to sleep. But by the time and 5 o'clock comes, the time for me to get up, 5.30 is my time. Do you see that? In the midst of this chaos, crisis, I lay down and slept. And trusting in God's sovereignty. Even if I don't do anything, in my sleep, God is at work. God's shalom will come. My enemies are everywhere. So in other words, people, these stories is not a moralistic lesson. It is the faith question. The lesson about our heart. How to trust God in our daily relationship. So, Here's the first lesson. Lesson number one, facing suffering and trials, we are to choose to align ourselves to God's sovereign will rather than demanding things from God. Instead of trying to use God to cooperate 
to what we need right now that as if we are we know the best of what we need god you better bring it and david said go back take it take the ark into the city again someday god will have mercy on me bring back the center is where god is not him the ultimate end the chief end is not my own goals but god's glory in god's glory i have fullest joy the best joy that i could have uh, apostle paul declares in his own said to to live is christ to die is to die is gain in the same spirit david has this and did you see that that there's a surrender of if i have no pleasure in you behold i here i am let him do to me what seems good to him let the lord do to me whatever he seems what seems good to him he trusted in sovereign god who is good beyond what we can imagine not in our own definition so some of you are frustrated things are not going well maybe you're stuck maybe you're experiencing trials and suffering maybe it's not your fault at all the proverbs 6:4 says the lord has made everything its purpose even the wicked for the day of trouble the evil bad things including that god is in control of all things the choice is between insisting our way or surrendering to sovereign god in faith and i know some of you is it it's too too difficult paul because i don't know what he has in mind how can i trust him that's the mystery isn't it but the simple thing i go back over and over if someone loved you so much that he died on the cross for you he laid down his life because he wanted to demonstrate show how much he loves you by dying on the cross excruciating painful painful death would he mislead you the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are those of us who are being saved it is the power of god lesson number 2 facing a friend or leader in suffering or failure we are to choose to be sacrificially loyal like itai and hushai rather than being fickle or hypocritical 
like Ziva and Shimei. The Itai's word of true loyalty, declaration of his commitment, is refreshing. Also, Hushai's willingness to live double life for his king and his friend. Uh, by the way, I can't wait we get to hear that story because Hushai's contribution makes a huge story about in Absalom's army, even with the strategic council of Ahithophel. Yes, it is easy to be loyal in good time, but true test of our character is revealed in how we treat our friends who are in downfall and suffering. It is also easy to criticize a leader who's in downfall and suffering, but it takes our integrity to hold our tongue and not to become judgmental. And after all, don't we need these kind of friends? A true friend, I think it's a Swedish proverb says, is one who walks into your life when everybody walks out. Oh, I would love that friend. When I'm questioned, when I am down, when I know I messed up, that friend who walks in to sit with me, not to lecture me, to share my sorrow and grief, to be identified with me. That's a high cost. We will want that. Third and last lesson, facing opposition and humiliation, we are to choose to be humbly broken toward God rather than being angrily vengeful toward people. And let's read David's word one more time in 16 verse 11 and 12, to Abishai, he's, he, who wants to take off his head, he said, leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. We really need this key lesson the key lesson is about trusting sovereign God and what God is doing when we think he is not doing anything. The choice is insisting our own control in anger or humble brokenness. This is not an emotional brokenness. This is a willful brokenness. The stiff-necked eye being broken 
and surrender to Christ. I wonder um, we hear the message, key message here of this story, of lesson. My heart go out to you, many of you who are going through little or big, gigantic troubles in your life. And I take it as my privilege, as much as it's my burden, as your pastor, to share in your suffering. I know I cannot convince you, so I'm praying, and with all my heart, I gently want to urge you to think about your faith. Is my faith in my control or surrender to God who is sovereign? Is there a risky? Yes. but you will never experience spiritual breakthrough unless you commit. And then committing requires us to surrender, humbling ourselves. I close with this, a poignant words from Eugene Peterson. He writes, in suffering, David recovered humility. He got back in touch with himself, his basic elemental self. He recovered humility when Shimei cursed him. As David was leaving Jerusalem, fleeing for his life during Absalom's, Absalom's coup, Shimei walked along a ridge above the road David was taking throwing rocks and yelling curses. The charismatic curses, kurjima is the proclamation of God's word. The kurjima is usually known as the preaching of the apostles. Right? So here, what Eugene Peterson is using is charismatic curses is like a Sermonetic curses, prophetic, God's voice curses. That's what he means. Charismatic curses brought David to himself. He realized what he become. All the thing, all the wrongs that he has committed, all the people he had failed. He could have taken a defensive and vengeful posture, but he didn't. He faced truth about himself that he was no better than anyone else. He faced the truth that his basic identity wasn't king, but sinner. And that he could live only by God's mercy. Shimei's curses peeled off all the royal veneer of David and exposed his soul. He left Shimei's curses be the, the word of God to him. 
kerygmatic Shimei. He let suffering bring him into the presence of the God of mercy and grace and love. The people of God, if we share this people who are unbelievers, who refused to listen to the mystery of God's sovereign will, this is nonsense. Pure nonsense. That's why it's a foolishness. But to those of us who have experienced God's mercy and grace and experience, if you are in the family of God, you belong to God's mercy, I know you hear it. I hope that the severe mercy of God that is in, your, in the midst of your suffering whether your loved one being sick, a serious illness, your children having development problems, your marriage under rock. God's severe mercy recovers us to humility. And that we get to experience true joy, true peace and true love, and that is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for these powerful lessons and the stories that we hear are so relevant to us, even in our own days. We do have sufferings and trials and crisis when people who are letting us down, people who are using us, and people who are fickle and disgruntled. And we also remember some of those things we are really at fault. Oh, our prayer is that you will keep our church humble a broken, contrite-hearted, that we may continually experience the mercy of God, love of God, as a vital community of Christ. And I pray for those people who are going through really tough times and trials and suffering right now, that you will comfort them, that you will open their eyes to to see that you are so much bigger, not only with the, than the problem, but also their understanding of what seems to be good. And in your mercy, we worship you. And even in our church zoning issue, we give you thanks a mist of opposition, and not knowing whether we could stay here next year or not. Keep us humble that we may continually experience your love and mercy and grace. 
In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.